to the Legal LGBTQ Plus Podcast. My name is Shane Filcher, I use they, he, she pronouns, and I'm the Executive Director of the LGBTQ Bar Association and Foundation of Greater New York. This is the February Law Notes episode of the podcast, and I'm excited to be joined in conversation with Professor Emeritus Art Leonard, Chief Editor and Writer of Legal's LGBT Law Notes. Law Notes is the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments both in the United States and abroad affecting LGBTQ plus people. I want to remind our listeners that the views expressed on our podcast are not an appropriate substitute for legal advice and may or may not reflect the views of the Bar Association and or its foundation. Professor Leonard, thank you for joining us. It's great to be here with you again, Shane. We're going to start off our conversation with the article that's actually the lead in this month's edition of Law Notes. Can you take us through the updates in Idaho? Yes, uh, the situation in Idaho. At the end of December, a senior U.S. District Judge Lynn Windmill issued a preliminary injunction against the Idaho Vulnerable Children Protection Act going into effect. Now, the Vulnerable Children Protection Act criminalizes all forms of gender-affirming health care for minor patients under 18 years of age. And uh, they, uh, they make it a crime for, uh, for physicians to perform such procedures. It, it affects uh, probation-blocking uh, hormones. It, it affects cross-sex hormones for transition. Uh, it affects surgical procedures, although it's vanishingly rare, actually, for surgical procedures involving genital alteration to be performed on minors virtually anywhere in the United States. That's really strongly discouraged under the standards of care of the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, which courts generally look to as the standard of care in this area. So at any rate, this statute, its proponents say, we're here to protect children from being irrevocably altered when they're not old enough to make this decision. And their claim is that the science is not firmly established, that this is beneficial. And they tend to harp on the idea that there are people who have early transitional care and then later regret it and want to detransition and go back to their birth sex. Opponents of this kind of legislation say that the data on that shows that there's only a very, very tiny percentage of people who transition who regret it and later want to go back. Other people say that that phenomenon is underreported because naturally uh, the people are not going to contact the uh, the physician who performed the gender-affirming care. If they decide to detransition, they'll go to somebody else. So that will evade being counted. So, so there's an argument about how uh, real that phenomenon is. How, uh... And then on the other hand, there's data showing that the overwhelming majority of people who transition are very happy about it and don't regret it. Uh, and like people taking puberty blockers, which means that they don't experience puberty at the time when uh, most teens are undergoing it, continue through to gender transition because uh, living in the gender they desire agrees with them and makes them feel comfortable. So, you know, we have we have significant arguments here, although the major medical associations in the United States all 
support at this point to providing gender-affirming care to minors if there is a careful diagnosis of gender dysphoria that's made and a determination uh, with capable, competent medical advice that this is an appropriate thing for the child in question, that it's an individual thing. It's not a categorical thing that every minor who uh, comes forth and says, well, I'm identifying uh, as the other gender than the one uh, on my birth certificate automatically gets gender affirming care. There's a diagnostic process and that's part of the standard of care. So in any rate, Idaho passed this law and it was slated to go into effect at the end of 2023. The judge issued a preliminary injunction in response to a lawsuit that was brought by two transgender youths and their parents. And what he said in the preliminary injunction is the law may not go into effect until a final ruling on the merits in this case. All right, the state asked for a stay. They asked, please allow it to go into effect because we're protecting children and we think it's important for it to go into effect. And uh, they would they would accept a preliminary injunction that just said it doesn't apply to the plaintiffs, the two transgender children and their parents in this case, that they can go ahead with gender affirming care while the case is pending. But the judge felt that there were serious constitutional issues here, that it was likely the plaintiffs would prevail in showing that the statute was unconstitutional as an interference with the, uh, the rights of the transgender minors and their parents. And so he did what, what the state in its uh, subsequent appeals of this uh, characterizes a universal preliminary injunction that bars any application of the law while the case is pending. Now the state, when they didn't get their stay, they appealed to the Ninth Circuit and they asked the Ninth Circuit to issue a stay. And the Ninth Circuit denied the stay as well. The judge denied the stay right at the end of December. The uh, Ninth Circuit denied the stay on January 16th, which puts that into the territory of the February issue of Law Notes. So we, we have a lead article there. Because the uh, opinion denying the stay, an extensive opinion by Judge Windmill justifying his prior decision to issue the stay, was not discussed in the prior issue of Law Notes. We went into a lot of detail in this story, which was written by one of our contributing writers, a, a third-year student at New York Law School, Ashton Hesse, and she did a terrific job on it, I think. There is a multifactorial test that the courts apply in determining whether to stay a preliminary injunction pending a trial and an ultimate decision on the merits. And one of the main issues when you break it all down is, is this a case where it's important to preserve the status quo pending trial? And if the case is about a challenge to a statute which is alleged to be unconstitutional, then the question is, should the state be allowed to go ahead and violate the constitutional rights of the plaintiffs while the case is pending? Or would that inflict an irreparable injury on them? And any violation of constitutional rights is an irreparable injury, but in this case, it would mean depriving these transgender plaintiffs of the health care that their physician and their parents believe that they should have. And the judge found that that would be an irreparable injury to them. 
And nothing that the state said in challenging that justified uh, granting a stay to the state and allowing this statute to go into effect. And the judge said, even though this case has not been certified as a class action yet, that may follow as part of the litigation. Because of the uh, irreparable injury issue to the plaintiffs and you know, looking at what has happened in litigation in other parts of the country, almost almost every trial court who has faced this issue has granted a preliminary injunction. Although now we have a few situations where courts of appeals have disagreed. And so this issue is likely to end up before the Supreme Court before too long. In this case, the Ninth Circuit panel affirmed the, uh, the judge and said, we don't see uh, any reason to issue a stay in this case. We agree with Judge Windmill's analysis. Now, uh, in an event post-dating all of these develops in January, just a few days before we were recording this podcast, the state filed an emergency application for stay pending appeal with the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, that was filed on February 16th because it comes out of a state that's in the Ninth Circuit. It's addressed to Justice Kagan. But uh, usually on cases of this sort, the justice to whom it is uh, first addressed refers it to the full court. Uh, so it's possible that we'll have a shadow docket decision one way or the other over the coming weeks on uh, whether Idaho is allowed to put their statute into effect or whether it will remain stayed. Uh, one of the main arguments made in this emergency application is that the minor plaintiffs uh, don't have standing to contest the part of the statute that bans surgical alteration because they're not looking for surgical alteration. They're, they're looking either to commence with puberty blockers or to start with cross-gender hormones, but they're not talking about surgery. But in addition, they argue that it is inappropriate where there is no certification of a class to provide the equivalent of class-wide relief by barring universal application of the statute. They said that, uh, that normally uh, for relief pending trial, you provide relief to the plaintiffs and that it should go no further than that. So one of the alternatives they're suggesting to the Supreme Court is that they just narrow the preliminary injunction so it only applies to uh, block enforcement of the statute against these two children and their parents. So we'll see how the Supreme Court handles that. The justices at, from time to time have expressed concern about the practice of district courts issuing broad preliminary injunctions that go beyond the parties in the case. Obviously, if this is certified as a class action, that would no longer be an issue. And just, you know, a, a sort of side note, one of the interesting arguments that they raised, they claimed that all of the expert uh, testimony that was before the trial judge was biased because the uh, it all came from practitioners who had an economic interest in being able to perform these procedures. And the weird thing was that none of the expert witnesses that were brought in by the plaintiffs practice in Idaho. So this statute didn't affect them personally in that sense. And they were brought in as experts and the judge said he relied on them because they had extensive experience 
in treating gender dysphoria, in dealing with minors with gender dysphoria, that they could testify out of their personal experience about the psychological issues and the medical issues. And the court pointed out none of the expert witnesses proffered by the state had this kind of experience. They were all speaking theoretically. And so he favored the experts presented by the plaintiff. And they, they did not have, these experts did not have a conflict of interest, as was argued by the state. The state made a lot of spurious arguments in this case. And uh, it's worth reading Judge Windmill's decision, which uh, was published on, uh, on West, Westlaw and Lexis, and is it available for reading. And we should point out that uh, this is an issue where there is a circuit split on uh, the gender affirming care issue. There is a petition before the Supreme Court in a, in a case out of the Sixth Circuit. And we may at any time now going forward over the next few weeks, have a decision on whether cert is granted and whether this is gonna be an issue on the Supreme Court's docket for merits uh, consideration next term. So keep your eyes and ears open for that. Another sort of interesting side thing to mention about this case uh, before we leave it is that although it's the attorney general of the state of Idaho, who is the named lead defendant and who's the petitioner on the Supreme Court petition, Alliance Defending Freedom has stepped in and is representing the state in this case. So, you know, you look at the questions presented and it's a, it's a typical Alliance Defending Freedom type thing where you can find that it's a very biased statement of uh, the question presented, things of that sort. So we've got the strong opponents who pop up all over the place, uh, in this case, representing the state. Appreciate the updates and we'll continue to monitor the situation as you've discussed. Yeah, we should, we should also point out that the uh, Ninth Circuit panel that denied the request for the stay was unanimous, but it consisted of judges appointed by Bill Clinton, Barack Obama. It was an entirely Democratic panel, which used to be somewhat typical in the Ninth Circuit, but with Trump having appointed 10 judges to the circuit, this was not a representative panel in that sense. The circuit is now almost evenly divided between Democratic and Republican appointees. So when cases go on bank, or even when a spin of the wheel assigns it to a three-judge panel uh, that is not representative of the split in the circuit, you can get very odd results. So we'll see, see what happens. There's a lot of stuff to watch, moving parts in this case. A lot of moving parts. Thank you for the context and the summary. One of the other issues that we've been continuing to monitor are book bans. They continue to be a nationwide discussion, both in terms of litigation and proposed legislation. This month, we're spotlighting two cases involving attempts at censorship in Texas and Florida. What do our listeners need to know about what's happening with book ban? Well, what's going on in Texas is really strange. And it is, is so extreme and so silly in a way that we got a Fifth Circuit decision written by a Trump appointee that said there are strong First Amendment arguments on behalf of the plaintiffs attacking this. Texas has passed a law which is called the, quote, Restricting Explicit and Adult Designated Educational Resources Act. And when you've got a title like that, you know it was to make an acronym. 
So the acronym is READER, R-E-A-D-E-R. -E so this is the READER Act. And the READER Act basically says that every publisher or distributor of books and other materials who wants to sell them to Texas public schools for classroom or library use must identify how they would be classified under a classification scheme set up by the statute. And uh, they've got to review individually every book in their inventory, which not only that they have for sale now, but any book that they've sold in the past. Because depending how they classify it, the book may have to be removed, may have to be returned, may have to be, I guess, get a refund for it. They, they have uh, three categories, sexually explicit, sexually relevant, and no rating. That is, there's nothing about sex in the book. It's a sexless book. It gets no rating. But uh, the publisher is supposed to rate it as either sexually explicit, which I guess would be an explicit depiction, either uh, visually or in text or words, of sexual acts or sexually relevant, that is, has anything to do with sex, anything about sex that falls short of being sexually explicit, and then no rating. Now, they're supposed to do this, and this is amazing. I mean, if you have a big publisher who, who sells lots of uh, large inventory, they have to individually go through every book and determine how to classify it. I mean, some just by, based on their reputation and how long they've been around, they can probably classify without having to go through in detail. But you know, if they slip up and they send through a book that has any sexually relevant material in it and they don't classify it, then they violated the law. But what they have to do is by April 1st of this year, which means in about a month and a half from now, they have to submit their ratings of all of the books that they've sold in the past or that they have for sale now to the state education department, the Texas Education Agency. And that agency is supposed to put up the list of the classifications on its website. And any book that is classified as sexually explicit must be removed. There may be no books that have any sexually explicit content in any public school in the state of Texas under this statute. If it's sexually relevant, they must segregate it from the rest of the collection. And only with a parent's written permission can a student have access to it. And then books that have no rating are just fine. They don't have to be removed. We don't have to pay attention to them. But there's a kicker here. The Texas Education Agency is charged with the power to review the list before posting it. And if they disagree with the classification, to get back to the publisher and ask the publisher to adjust the classification on their list. And if the publisher disagrees and refuses to do so, then the publisher will be deemed non-compliant. And if the publisher is deemed non-compliant, all Texas public school districts are forbidden by this law to buy anything from that publisher. And the list that's published on the website, well, it's, it's labeled as that publisher's rating of their books, even if they've changed classifications at the behest of the Texas Education Agency, 
which will refuse to publish their list unless they make the changes. So it means actually the bureaucrats in Austin are going to be the last word on how this is classified. Now, the lawsuit was brought on behalf of some publishers, on uh, a major book distributor, on behalf of authors, Penn USA, which is an organization of, uh, of professional authors, they're uh, contesting it. It's pretty heavy litigation uh, with, uh, with lots of attorneys on the plaintiff side. And they claim that this just violates the First Amendment like crazy. That there's compelled speech. They're compelling the publishers uh, to, uh, to uh, make a judgment about whether their book should be classified as sexually relevant or sexually explicit. That it's violating the First Amendment rights of the authors by interfering with their ability to get their books before the readers. It's interfering, and there are also uh, students and their parents who are plaintiffs here because the students are, might be interested in checking out books that are not going to be available to them as a result of this. I mean, it's, it's a, a full bore challenge. And the federal district court decided that there's enough of a First Amendment problem here to issue a preliminary injunction against this law going into effect. And it's, it's particularly important because of that deadline in the statute. And any publisher that's been selling books to the state of Texas, to the schools, to the school libraries, or bought by teachers for their classrooms, whatever, if it's going to be in a Texas school, it's covered. And as to the, uh, the scale of the burden imposed on the publishers, there was one publisher who estimated it would be millions of dollars in staff time to make individual determinations to go through every book and to hope that they have records of every book that they've sold to a Texas school district. This goes back. There's, there's sort of an ex post facto aspect to this, although it's not a criminal statute. It's just saying that they can't sell their books anymore. And Texas is a huge state. They've got an incredibly large number of school districts. Millions and millions of dollars are paid every year by Texas schools on book acquisition. So this is a huge market that's being affected by this. Uh, and so the, uh, the court had no trouble in deciding that the plaintiffs had standing and uh, to finding that irreparable injury would occur if this went into effect and it turned out that it was unconstitutional and that there was a good chance this was unconstitutional. And the state brought it to the Fifth Circuit and uh, asked the Fifth Circuit uh, to reverse this preliminary injunction. And the Fifth Circuit panel, in a, a decision by Judge Don Willett, who was appointed to the Fifth Circuit by Trump, said this was likely to be a violation of the First Amendment and that the uh, criteria for preliminary injunction had been met. So, you know, the Fifth, Fifth Circuit is one of the most conservative circuits in the country. It's loaded up with Trump appointees. And there are a lot of very conservative George W. Bush appointees on the circuit, including many of the senior judges who you will find on three judge panels, but not on, on bank panels usually. But he said that this rating system does involve compelled speech issues. The state's main defense was they said, no, this is something that's going to be posted on the state education agency's website. This is government speech. The First Amendment does not apply.
And the court said, oh, the First Amendment does apply because it's being labeled on the government website as the speech of the publisher. And it's the publisher's classification. So it is a compelled speech case. And that any loss of First Amendment freedoms is enough to constitute irreparable injury. The public interest is always in favor of correcting First Amendment violations. So the preliminary injunction is affirmed in this case. And it was unanimous from the three-judge panel. The other judge, judges on the panel, uh, Judge Weiner, was appointed by the first President Bush in 1990. And Judge Dana Douglas was appointed by President Biden in 2022. It was a unanimous Fifth Circuit panel. Uh, the other case is from Florida. It involves the Escambia County School Board, which adopted a book removal policy in order to comply with one of the laws that Governor DeSantis has pushed through the Florida legislature to uh, make it easier for people to object to books that are in the school library or in the uh, libraries that are in classrooms. And so in this case, we had parents suing on behalf of their children, and we had authors suing, and they claim that there's a First Amendment issue here and also an equal protection issue uh, because they said that most of the books that would be removed and in Escambia County that they were actually starting to remove from the shelves were books by uh, minority and LGBTQ authors. They said they would they were being disparately impacted by this because of the criteria uh, that was set up in the statute. The court found that there were plausible First Amendment claims here, but they didn't find an equal protection. They they said equal protection under the 14th Amendment uh, requires intentional discrimination. Disparate impact claims generally cannot be uh, be raised under the 14th Amendment. And so they granted the motion to dismiss the equal protection claim. But they found that the First Amendment claims were quite serious. And uh, they relied on a Supreme Court decision from 1982, Board of Education versus PICO, a, a case that I believe arose out on Long Island, involving a school district that was removing books from a library collection on the complaints of some parents who objected to their content. And the argument was made that the decision to acquire or remove books is a governmental decision, and therefore it's not subject to First Amendment review. The Supreme Court, by majority vote, rejected that point of view. And in this case, the state, in or actually the, the uh, school board in defending this case, relied on dissents in the Pico case. But you know, relying on a dissent doesn't get you very far if the majority opinion is still good law. And majority opinion is still good law. It's never been overruled. So uh, the court said school officials cannot remove books solely because they disagree with the views expressed in the books, but they can make content-based removal decisions based on legitimate pedagogical concerns, including things like pornographic or sexual content, vulgar or offensive language, gross factual inaccuracies, educational unsuitability for certain grade levels, but in the complaint in this case, and for purposes of deciding a motion to dismiss, the court takes the complaint's allegations as the basis for making the decision. They allege that the removal decisions in the Escambia district were based on, quote, ideological objection 
to their content or disagreement with their messages or themes rather than for pedagogical reasons. And the court said, if they can prove this at trial, they have a strong First Amendment claim, but they've certainly uh, met the bar for allegations that will withstand a motion to dismiss. They have placed in question serious First Amendment concerns. And so uh, this is a case, interestingly, where the judge, district judge, was appointed by President Donald J. Trump. It seems that uh, that some of the Trump judges are pretty strong on First Amendment rights. That may be why we've also had uh, some success in uh, attacking these anti-drag laws, which raise First Amendment issues, and sometimes winning decisions before Trump appointed judges. So uh, this decision was announced on January 12, 2024. Presumably, the school board will appeal to the 11th Circuit. Let's see what happens. Oh, right. They can't, they can't appeal to the, uh, the 11th Circuit yet. I don't think the motion to dismiss was denied. Well, I guess they could appeal that. But the point is they'd have to wait till after the case is decided on the merits, I think. In any event. So that's the latest on the book banning. And we know that the book bans, the attacks on identification document access, and the attacks on access to affirming restrooms are all happening together, right? None of these things are individual or in a vacuum. So we're returning to one state that's we I think we've previously discussed all of these issues out of at this point, and that's Oklahoma. Can you let us know what's going on legislatively with Oklahoma that's impacting our LGBTQ plus youth? The latest thing in Oklahoma is a bathroom bill. And this is a bill that excludes transgender students from using school bathrooms consistent with their gender identity. And, you know, this it's, it's always unpredictable which district judge you're going to get. They got a recent Trump appointee, Judge Jody Dishman. And whereas many Trump appointees have proven pretty good on First Amendment rights, they're not necessarily very good on transgender issues. So here, well, you, you, you only have to quote from the opinion to know how this one's going to turn out. She wrote, physical differences between men and women are enduring, and sex, like race and national origin, is an immutable characteristic. As soon as they start saying immutable characteristic, you know where we're going. They don't believe in transgender as a real phenomenon. And there is no binding 10th Circuit precedent on the issue of bathroom bills yet. They've been struck down in some circuits. They've been upheld in other circuits or bathroom policies. As was, I mean, the 11th Circuit case is a policy of a school district, uh, not a bill. But I think subsequently there is a bill now. There is, is a law in Florida on, on restrooms. The plaintiffs in this case are three transgender students attending public high schools in Oklahoma. They were adversely affected because the law forces them to use the bathroom that coincides with their biological status instead of the gender with which they identify. They sued on September 6, 2022, challenging the Constitution under the Equal Protection Clause and Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972. They claim that this law prevents them from being treated like other Oklahoma public school students who are allowed 
to use the restroom consistent with their gender identity, which is the same as their uh, gender as identified at birth or sex as identified at birth. The court did determine that intermediate scrutiny applies in this case. That is, that if the statute discriminates on the basis of gender identity, the state has to have a, an important governmental objective. And they've decided that the important governmental objective is ensuring students are safe and have privacy from the opposite sex in restrooms. And that this law is substantially related to that interest. In other words, the court doesn't care about danger to the transgender students who would not be allowed to use the restroom consistent with their gender identity. And one assumes in many cases with the way they are presenting themselves, the way they're dressing and grooming. These are high school students. So some of them may be somewhere far along in transitioning. Unless, of course, there's a ban on gender affirming care in Oklahoma. And that's a separate issue that I think is being litigated separately. But in this case, both as to uh, the equal protection issue and the Title IX issue, the judge relies on a dissenting opinion from the Fourth Circuit by a conservative uh, circuit judge, Paul Niemeyer, who was dissenting from the Fourth Circuit's ruling in the Gavin Grimm case, which people may remember from uh, several years ago. Uh, Gavin Grimm was a transgender boy who was not allowed to use the boys' restroom at his high school. And the Fourth Circuit held not only an initial, but on, on bank, they held that that violated his rights under equal protection and Title IX uh, with Judge Neymar dissenting. And this, this court quotes from the dissent, the dictionary definition of sex, which refers to the physiological distinctions between males and females, must be what Congress intended in Title IX. And Title IX does provide that schools can have separate restroom and locker room facilities for male and female students. They can segregate on the basis of sex, but the question is, what is sex for this purpose? And uh, this judge decides it's the dictionary definition, citing Judge Niemeyer's dissent. Not, as the majority said, it could comprehend the concept of gender identity, and uh, certainly under Title VII, we have that now under the Bostock decision that sex includes gender identity. But the court says that in this case, there is no discrimination on the basis of sex. And on the basis of sex is what Title IX says, that you can't discriminate on the basis of sex. And sex means biological sex, which means genital sex. And so she says, that uh, there is no equal protection claim here. Now, the circuit courts are split on this. I think it's likely that uh, the plaintiffs will appeal this ruling to the Tenth Circuit, which has no precedent on it. Uh, Lambda Legal is on this case, uh, together with uh, cooperating attorneys from Covington and Berlin, and off they go. So we may have something from the Tenth Circuit. But in the meantime, we may even end up with something before the Supreme Court. They they have been reluctant to take bathroom cases. I think maybe they're a bit squeamish about having an oral argument that's going to focus on bathrooms. That's possible. The issue has been further complicated by the February update of 
we recently learned of the death of a non-binary teenager, Nex Benedict, who died after being brutally attacked by their peers in a school restroom in Oklahoma. Yeah, this is this is this is a real issue, I think, and it's a real safety issue for transgender students. It's not just a safety issue or a privacy issue for uh, for other students, and and quite a few courts looking into the matter. And some in cases ruling on the merits, not just our preliminary injunctions or motions to dismiss, have said that the privacy issues go the other way. The privacy issues are, are issues for the transgender student. And that, in fact, the privacy rights of the cisgender students are not being violated. That, that when a transgender student goes into a restroom, they're going to be very discreet. You know, they're going to uh, avoid provoking anyone uh, and you know they'll go into the stall do their business and leave so well we'll see what happens here that's a very sad story out of Oklahoma a sad story we don't know a lot of the facts yet so it may be something we return to next month but in any event just heartbreaking news for the community well we certainly don't want to end on that note it's already been a tough year in terms of losses do you have something of note that we could perhaps discuss instead? Yes. A uh, decision out of Arizona on January 5th in Doe versus Horn. Doe versus Horn is the case in which two transgender girls and their parents are seeking declaratory and injunctive relief against enforcement of Arizona's recently enacted law that prohibits transgender girls and women from participating in interscholastic or intramural sports. Well, the state filed a demand for a jury trial. And on January 5th, the judge basically said, are you kidding me? They're asking for declaratory and injunctive relief. Juries do not have the authority to issue declaratory and injunctive relief. That's equitable relief. Juries have, have the authority to decide whether a law is being violated and to award monetary damages. But the plaintiffs in this case aren't asking for monetary damages. And none of the federal statutes that are being sued on by the plaintiffs authorize jury trials. And she said, the, this is Judge Jennifer Zips, a, uh, an Obama appointee. She said, the Seventh Amendment has also been construed not to apply when the only remedy plaintiffs seek is an equitable remedy, in this case, an injunction against enforcement of an allegedly unconstitutional law. Juries are not empowered to issue injunctions and to exercise equitable judgment. They're supposed to do fact-finding and then apply the law as explained to them by the judge to the facts. They don't have discretion. Uh, now, the court doesn't discuss the political strategy behind the jury demand, but it seems blatantly clear. Public opinion polls show that the majority of the public is not yet on board with the idea of letting transgender girls and women compete in women's sports. There is not majority support on the public. So the defendants in this case wanted to take the decision out of the hands of a judge and put it in the hands of a jury, thinking they'd have a better shot in winning. Uh, I mean, the idea of bringing a case of this sort before a jury and getting a fair result is a non-starter. So uh, there was also a request by the defendants for an advisory jury. And the judge says, basically, no, I don't need an advisory jury. Sometimes advisory juries are done 
are, are used when there's a significant amount of fact finding to be done in a case, but that ultimately a decision uh, to grant equitable relief is all that's at stake. So you might appoint a jury to uh, have, uh, you know, one of those verdict sheets they fill out answering questions on fact finding. But the judge said, no, I don't need an advisory jury here. The National Center for Lesbian Rights, uh, with pro bono assistance from Debo Voice and Clinton, is uh, representing the plaintiffs. And there's local counsel, of course, in Arizona. So I think that's good. We're not going to have a jury deciding whether girls can compete, uh, transgender girls can compete. Leave it to a judge who's going to uh, have to hear a lot of expert testimony, make a decision as to whether it is justified restricting the ability of transgender girls to compete. And so far, we've had mixed results on that issue. We'll see how that one turns out. We'll see how that one turns out. And a reminder to always pay attention to civil procedure. Right. Well, Professor Leonard, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you, as always, to our listeners. Please continue to like, share, and find us on Apple Music, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.